I'm Najasad for Biz News and I'm sitting here in lovely Cape Town on the 4th of January with Simon Lincoln Reader, who is Biz News' most popular columnist. And once a week without fail, he sends us a fabulously satirical assessment of the events of the week or two before. So, Simon, really good to chat to you. Lovely to meet you. And... uh what a wonderful day to be doing this on. London is a shithole at the moment. I think we should make that very clear that it's wonderful to be doing this. I assume there was a reason that you came to this side of the world. Exactly. Because it just is oh, amazing. It's magical. So let's just start with your background. You're a London-based technology investor, but you're South African. Yeah. So can you walk me through that? So uh, I went to uh, the UK for the first time in 1996, uh, which was primarily to spend some time there and um, scope out the joint. Uh, had no real plans, had no real uh, prospects at that stage. Um, and I came back a couple of years later and I found a job working on a game reserve, uh, which I did um, until 2000 and. When I failed at university, so that didn't work very well for me. I'm not particularly um, academic. I worked at a game reserve instead, which was fantastic, which was the best sort of education that I think that someone like me could have That's ever amazing. had. amazing. Which game reserve? Uh, at Singita. Okay. And in the Salvi Sands. And at the end of that, I went into, I moved to Johannesburg, and I worked in HIV-AIDS communication. I joined the ANC, and I spent... Um, the better part of 2003, 2004, traveling around South Africa on an HIV-AIDS roadshow sponsored by the U.S. Department of Health, um, uh, which was uh, funding antiretrovirals for the SANDF. Um, at that point, there was a, a rather alarming uh, number of, of soldiers um, infected that they knew of and, and obviously dependents. So uh, the U.S. Institute of Health... Um, which was actually more the Henry Jackson Foundation, which is separate to the British one, but the one in the US financed an antiretroviral campaign mm. for dependents and uh, soldiers and their dependents. So we went around the country promoting this and um, all the military bases, taxi ranks, football stadiums. I built a Chinese dragon of a rotting penis that I used to run around uh, the half time uh, at. Uh, one was, and there was something called the BP Top 8, if it was called that, if I remember that properly. And it wasn't particularly well received, but at that point, um, the South African government was still behaving rather oddly on the subject of HIV-AIDS. And, and this uh, was the late 1990s? No, 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 this was the early 2000s. All right. Early, early 2000s. Yeah, so I did that until 2008, around then, and then I... I co-founded a renewable energy firm, and we in SA. in South Africa, and we developed um, solar photovoltaic um, industrial scale facilities in the Western Cape in the Northwest Province. That was acquired by an Italian. Um, uh, it's Italy's equivalent of ESCOM, and I then went to London. In 2015, as a permanent move, well, not as a permanent move, but as a something different. I'd been in Johannesburg for 13 years, and I'd seen pretty much all sides of it. My 
role in the energy firm as, as, as I was the chief investment officer, but I also maintained government relations. And, um, you know, in, in, in 2013, uh, I got a column with Business Day because I thought that if there was enough eyes on a project the scale of the um, renewable energy project, if there was uh, enough information, it would be difficult to screw up behind the scenes. It would be difficult to mm. corrupt. Mm. Um, and, you know, I was ostensibly going to write about that as my main sort of why I was an energy writer, essentially. Mm. Um, and then it sort of it kind of evolved into more politics um, from there. But, yeah, and then, and then it's in London, I did the hard yards in... Um, I wanted to get involved in financial technology and... And what year did you immigrate to London? In 2015, permanently. All right. Okay, so that's not too long ago. Not too long ago, no. Okay. And, um, and then I, I worked um, as the chief operating officer of a company called Forex, um, which was started by two South Africans. A friend of mine, a dearly departed guy called um, uh, um, Jeff Patterson, and um, he uh, and another guy called Oliver Tutuhe had started a foreign exchange um, kiosk where you'd throw coins and, and get money back for it. It was a fascinating idea. Unfortunately, Koof killed it because no one was traveling and no one was exchanging coins and so on. But, but I left that before. I left that in, in, in 2018 when I was invited to become a partner in a, uh, a small fund investing in um, startups, which I keep to this day. So I'm a, I'm a founder, I'm an investor, um, and yeah, that's, that's where I stand today. Do you work for the ANC? I, I, no, I was a member. You were a member of the ANC? I was a, I was a member of the ANC because I believed, uh, you must remember... In and this was at two, what stage? 2002, 2003, I'd just come off uh, working at a game reserve, I had um, a very sort of clear knowledge, you know, a defined picture of, of poverty and hmm. uh, dispossession, and... Um, I was very uh, impressed by the type. Well, I, you know, I don't know if "impressed" is the right word, but I, I saw the, the 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 empowerment to ANC as a force for good at the time. I, mm. It wasn't the tenderpreneurship ANC; it was the empowerment ANC, mm. and that was led by guys like Tito and Bueni. And you'd go to Catsies on a Friday night, which is a bar in Rosebank, mm. and all of these guys would be looking very smart. And they'd actually look no, down we their noses at you. were still under the leadership of Madiba. Well, yes, we were under the spiritual. We, it was Mbeki administration, but it was under the spiritual mm. um, dividend of, of Mandela. And those are the guys that, that, you, that impressed you. There were big deals going on at the time. There was Jonic, there was uh, the media, there was mining. And um, I, was imp I was impressed by the arrogance of these guys. They, they, were, they knew exactly what where they were, the opportunities for them were enormous. And were these deals clean? I didn't know enough at the time. I think, you know, in, in, it's transpired that, no, I could probably tell you they weren't. In the, in, but at the time, I didn't have any sort of information mm. to tell me otherwise. And I just looked at these guys and thought, this is a, a quite a cool bunch of dudes. Mm. Um, you know, they were smartly turned out. That Rosebank uh, uh, Hyatt, that was sort of the nexus of their black empowerment movement, mm. uh, the financial movement. Mm. Um, and all of the gossip columnists from the Sunday Times would fawn over these guys, but in particular, Gwen Gill, um, who's not around anymore. I think her son's the managing director of, of, um, of, of uh, Sunday Times or, or, or whatever it now is known as. But the point is that I, 
had a, you know, I, I was idealistic and I wanted to give the, the ANC a chance and my politics at that point were um, decidedly not left, but, you know, I, I felt that the ANC really had a chance, like many people. You know, I, I, I was just one of, 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 of hundreds of thousands of whites who were enthused by the, um, as I said, the, the Mandela dividend. The promise shown yeah, yeah, yeah. by the new era, mm. which, you know, he was behind. Yeah. So, second question, why a penis shape? Why a penis shape? Uh, for the for the for the uh, because it was striking, and it was the type of industrial theatre that really did make a difference. So, in addition to doing HIV/AIDS uh, communication, uh, the company that I was with also did a lot of the mines in um, the Eastern Transvaal about safety and health. And we used theatre, and we used actors from the like Issy Dingo, and a number of SABC, you know, high, huge volume. Um, uh, um, and, and these actors were recognizable, very, very popular. And they'd act out, you know, how to use a, a helmet, how to attire yourself correctly um, with the correct safe, safety uh, protective equipment when you are in a coal mine, for example. Stuff like that. And then the HIV AIDS stuff was, was, was controversial, but it, it, it worked. I mean, we handed out, you know, something like, Five million condoms. We um, we 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 produced some really entertaining theatre. I worked with a wonderful DJ from YFM called Ashifa Shaba, um, who was a sort of a comedic figure there. Um, and we went to places like Venda. We went uh, to the Eastern Cape in Dansane, and you know we drove in a combi with a bunch of actors. Had a great time. It was a it was it was fantastic. I, I really really loved it. Um, and yeah, that was a. It was a great era, Johannesburg. I think everyone was, 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 was confident. They were, you know, I, I, there was never. I didn't notice the rush, uh, as I do today, to sort of, you know, get your money away, you know, get your kids away. Yeah. But so, considering your extensive involvement in local government, mm. right before you decided to immigrate in 2015. I mean, many people immigrate all the time, but it's very rare to find someone that's that involved and deeply involved in local politics to pick up and say, I'm leaving. Well, that's an interesting thing. You know, I was never interested as a child in politics. I had fuck all interest in it. And um, something happened to me when I was 18 years old. I arrived in England um, and I arrived via Switzerland. There was a Swiss Air flight to Zurich and... Then I jumped on the connective flight. I got really drunk on the plane, and um, and the law changed while I was in the air. And uh, I got to the uh, the customs desk, and this dude, his name I always remember his name. He's called Michael King. He was like, "You, you go, you're going to the the anti-African deportation." What law changed while you were in the air? You could until 1996. You could travel freely without a visa without a uh, uh, because I you know I was ostensibly wanting to work there yes. so when I got there um, I said I wanted to work and they said but you don't have the right stamp in your passport in 1996 like, yeah yeah and I was like oh, okay well um, I, I didn't I didn't know about this anyways um, I'm going to do some name dropping here shamelessly um, so my um, Margaret Thatcher bailed me out of jail the, the Heathrow 
Um, the Iron Lady. The Iron Lady. My parents were friends of hers, and um, her son at the time had moved to Cape Town, and my parents had kind of adopted him. But there was a, a you know, a, a, and a, you know, it was one of those moments where you know I, I would spend a, a lot of time with her in the following weeks. Um, I'd, I'd, after I'd been bailed out of, you know, this dude Michael King, after he'd put me in like the cell with a whole bunch of other undesirables, mm-hmm. like it's so like mm-hmm. just all the black guys, the Pakistani dudes, and everyone else was fine. So if you were like uh, Australian and you had, uh, you didn't have the right, to, I, I was convinced. I mean, I, I thought it was a pretty racist uh, arrangement because all the other guys down there just so happened to be black. Yeah, yeah, and 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 so. I got out of there because this dude came scurrying down the corridor and he was like, oh, fuck, you, you, you must know some important people. And I, I was like, what, what has just happened? And he was like f- putting his hand in his own pockets, like, here's, here's money for a taxi. Here's money for a taxi. Say Michael King helped you out. He say, say Michael King gave you, gave you cash. And, and I got to London and um, I, then I went and stayed with her, at the time, her personal secretary, I went and stayed with her a personal secretary, and the instruction was to be be at her her office the next morning at, at nine o'clock. Margaret Thatcher's office. Margaret Thatcher's office, and she wasn't prime minister anymore. She ran the Margaret Thatcher, um, the, the the Baroness Thatcher Foundation, and her offices had just had received four days earlier four bullets in the news in the in the in the, in the post. Um, from the IRA and she was like fuck this I don't care I mean they were she was an extraordinary woman and the effect that she had on on me um, you know irrespective of of my belief in the ANC uh, you know I I became immediately interested in British politics at that point Mm -hmm. immediately and um, and and you know I was very lucky to to obviously spend time with her Um, and then I would obviously read about you know what she'd done as I as I grew older, um, and that's you know at the at the at the heart of of my politics is still the the belief um, that that her politics were probably the best that the world my world has ever known will ever know, and that is the simplest. It was count your pennies and the notes will look after themselves. Be responsible fiscally, be responsible culturally. And uh, what do you think that entailed? The answer to that is that I do not believe that if Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom today, that we'd be having these conversations about woke shit, because that's all an import from California. Okay, my, my wife, my beautiful wife is from California, and but she's a Orange County Republican, okay? Uh, and, I, I, you know, I, I, uh, I struck gold there, uh, because California, the rest, the, the rest of it, is totally fucked up and has been for a very long time. But the point is that she would have, I, I believe, um, she would have positioned herself as an insurmountable obstacle in the face of such um, ideological creep. I think that there would be nowhere near the level of tolerance. The institutions who, you know, the British institutions under Margaret Thatcher were extraordinary. Tony Blair stripped them to pieces. By the way, that arsehole just got awarded a knighthood uh, in the Queen's honours list, Sir Tony Blair. He, he just became to- Sir Tony Blair on on um, on on Saturday, on the weekend. Based uh, on the, what well, exactly? Well, that's a good question because what he stripped the institutions, he caused havoc in the Middle East from which we haven't yet to recover. He's enriched himself. He's helped dictatorships such as Kazakhstan, 
uh, amongst others, he's, he's concealed his own wealth in a myriad of peculiar tax structures. So, you know, that's a good question. For what exactly? I personally believe that Boris Johnson is trolling us, okay, with this appointment. Now, I know it's not him who gives out these uh, honours, but the people that thought it would be a good idea for Britain in the current state that it is, which is a very fucking angry place, to, uh, to give that piece of shit a, a, a knighthood. And they've got nearly 500,000 names on change.org demanding that he be stripped of, of, of that position already. And it's just been announced. But anyway, so, so what she, Margaret Thatcher, did um, in, in uh, you know, Charles Moore's biographies, the three, um, uh, he, he wrote three volumes, and, all, and you could see the, how, how important it was to put reliable, impartial people in your charities commissions, in the um, national, in the, in the trust, national trust, looking after all the stately homes and all of that. And these go, those have been completely, completely infested, infected with woke uh, ideologues. The BBC, um, you know, that's something, the BBC, she tried, but she failed. She tried to, to rein it in. Before wokeness in its Californian variant arrived in the UK, um, the BBC was the place where all of the stupid nonsense of race and gender And was this was around done. what year? Well, it was... You know, through the it's early, it was through the 70s, it was through the 80s, through the 90s. Okay, if you look at the 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 worst of them all, Jimmy Savile, he had been um, nonsing uh, children in hospitals on television shows, and the BBC were absolutely conscious of this. Jimmy Savile was anything. he a high-end reporter for the no, BBC? No, no, no. He was an entertainer. He had a he had a a, a, a terrible program called Jim Will Fix It. He was such a psychopath that he, 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 his, he, his, he modeled his behavior about predatory pedophilia, okay, around proximity to children. So he thought, if I become an entertainer, and then that gives me like direct access. He used to stay in hotel, uh, hospitals where kids were, were, were um, you know, sick children were, were placed, and they, the hospital gave him keys so he could come in and out. I don't even know how many uh, people he abused, but the mis it must run into thousands, possibly tens of thousands. And, and, and he died in 2013, and, and all the stuff about you know the BBC's kind of... They had a, 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 a shocking antipathy toward Margaret Thatcher, and it still comes out today in the uh, ideological position that the news... Uh, desk takes on issues and you could see it even in things like COVID they want lockdowns, they want to believe in the expert class they, you know, they, don't, they don't like the man that Margaret Thatcher made who was the self-employed double glazing installer the, the guy who had a business off the back of his head, I don't have a, a degree I don't have nothing but, but I've got motivation and I, I, I learn quickly those are the guys that, 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 that that's the, the, the type of person that Margaret Thatcher raised. She raised the entrepreneur, and, and that's the person that the BBC despises. The BBC wants the subsidized class, the professors, the guys who are at the university um, in receipt of do generous donations. Those are the guys that they want as leading the country, the, the technocrats. And um, that's, you know, Margaret Thatcher didn't necessarily believe in that she 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 had a, a an entirely and and you must think 
you know, back to this era, this, that parliament was a sexist sewer. She was one of the only women, and she was looked down upon by these guys who were all members of the gentlemen's clubs of St. James. And I stand corrected, but she was the last woman uh, in a power position like herself. Theresa May, from 2016 until 2019. Theresa May was the um, uh, second prime minister, but, but Theresa May was, you know, she... she, she, she yeah, but that's only uh, one term. Yeah, well, yeah, and, I mean, she, she, she was forced out, um, and, and she wasn't a really inspiring person. Mm. She, I, I felt sorry for her at, at the end. There was this, there, you know, but um, Boris was the, was the big disappointment. I mean, I kind of, you know, I went to, after having been so in love with, with Thatcher, Thatcher, Thatcherism, um, you know, I, I, st- I worked with a think tank in the in the UK, which was which was big, which was a big Thatcher um, follower, um, who did studies in wealth. And uh, my brief with them, uh, before I started working with Forex, my brief with them was to, uh, you know, to show the good um, that, that that South Africans and and, and in general Africans had. Um, uh, to, to, to a large degree prospered against all of this other negative um, uh, rhetoric about uh, still being deprived, still being... But there was a huge sort of progression in living standards, in earning power, and um, I've been vindicated. Herman Mashaba said to me that we need to have a, a conversation about this because he was like, he said, you know, people tell you that you, you, you're calling bullshit here, I said that's absolutely fine, but like the data that these guys have got uh, indicates quite clearly that there has been much more progress than we give it credit for. So this is the data. This is what the data revealed. And then you know how this has been vindicated in the last year. It's been revealed that it's African kids in London that are progressing much, much more than anyone. Like the, the Caribbean dudes, they are falling way behind. The Pakistani dudes are falling way behind. Out of all the sort of minority immigrant groups, mm. the Africans are doing enormously well. And the Nigerian, uh, um, uh, Ghanaian, particularly amongst those uh, immigrant um, uh, nations, you're finding them, uh, their employment prospects have improved, their um, uh, a- academic uh, progress has Im- and, and achievements have improved, they're getting uh, admission into the universities, the uh, Oxbridge universities. It's, it's, it's astonishing. How are all these people finding their way to England in a manner above board enough for that sort of measurement to actually sure. take so place? So, so it's a lot of it's got to do with colonialism, the legacy of colonialism, British interest in Africa. And you find that, uh, you know, Kenya, a lot of Kenyans in Africa, uh, in, in, in the UK, um, Kenyans are, are another group that are, that, that are, uh, are excelling. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a combination uh, of, of, you know, if you, uh, a, a lot of the families two, three generations ago immigrated because the British were in their countries and they said, okay, well, we'd like to go across and maybe work in the United Kingdom. And then they had kids. And it's this generation now where we're seeing these results that these guys are actually, they're doing better than white working class kids. The, the, the lowest performing uh, group in the UK are, um, are, are, are white working class British children. They fail at school. They get excluded. They can't get employed. They are, they're, they're in the dumps, man. Are we talking about the age group just post high school? 11 to 18. 
11 to 18 years. Yeah, 11 to 18. This is where the changes are starting to, to, to reveal themselves. Oh, really? So it's a fascinating thing because, you know, in 10 years' time, if you're looking at, like, a sector like tech, which is encouraging, uh, in, uh, in, you know, in, in, um, attracting a number of, of uh, young immigrant uh, African kids, they're the children of immigrants. They're the children of either first or second generation immigrants. So the guys that settled there, they were born there. Get their high school certification there. Mm. But because of their hardship prior there to, they're the ones that excel exponentially yes. more than the people that almost, they grew up there. This was the way of life. It, it's not necessarily a sense of entitlement, but it, it, it could well be in many cases. Well, the British have a, a shocking... Well, the, you, the, there is a sense of entitlement there. And, um, you know, there's a lot of resentment now as... It's similar to America, or you know, the, the biggest achieving group there. It's it's are, are the Asian kids who who work harder and are smarter, um, and more disciplined, work longer, um, and 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 we're seeing that like traces of, of that sort of um, uh, uh, movement within the in the progress structure with within England, in particular with African kids. It's you know, you, you, their parents, these guys probably working for the council as a street sweeper or, or something, growing up hard, having to work extra hard. And, you know, as I said, in 10 years, you might be, be seeing a, 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 an enormous shift. And hopefully that's the case. I'd, I'd love to see, I'd love to see more uh, African immigrant CEOs. I'd love to see more first generation African guys in, in London succeeding. So before we move on, your experience with Margaret Thatcher can you give me three things in terms of her very solid ideology and plan and I mean no one can deny the impact that she made <clears throat> but, yeah. but that you took away from your experience of actually meeting her Margaret Thatcher was also surrounded by a bunch of you know uh, people who, who, who were very interested in themselves her guy was Tim Bell he ran her advertising campaign who was who became the head of uh, Bell Pottinger? Okay, so he ran her, her her very successful election campaigns. He was in charge of that. So it wasn't all, you know, it's it's not all hero heroic stuff. There's some dark dark shit too because he he wasn't a, a particularly good dude. Was she potentially involved in the beginning of his indiscretion? I can't answer that. I don't quite know what sort of. But I remember her. She sat in this room. At the front of my house, Roger. With, yeah, she and, and and spoke about how she loved Nelson Mandela and the people who doubt that and so on. And I have no reason to. I think that she was genuinely a a good woman. And I think that you have to play politics, um, you know. And and, and people who 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 uh, have a problem with Margaret Thatcher's relationship with apartheid, um, and who doubt and who doubt her her, her sort of her, her position as being anti it. Um, are the same people who don't seem to have a problem with the Chinese Communist Party's treatment of Uyghurs. So, so there's hypocrisy in all of these angles, all throughout mm. history, mm. And, and so on. I genuinely believe that she was anti-apartheid. Um, could she have done more? It's not for me to comment mm. on that. Um, what did I have I taken away in, in what I knew and what I've read? Mm. I was, you know, like a little tiddlywink 18-year-old um, and you know, I continued. We continued until you know a couple of years before her death. My family maintained the relationship whenever she was here. Um, I, I saw her. We um, 
we, you know, Mark Thatcher was involved in uh, her son who moved to Cape Town, who bought the house that the Guptas subsequently bought in Constantia. Um, uh, he he got involved in some pretty shady shit in Equatorial Guinea, mm. which is the which is next to my office in in London. Um, and uh, they have the embassy for Equatorial Guinea is is in a quite a smart area of London. It's fucking those that place is is um, is beyond dark. But uh, he had to run. He had to, to get out of there very quickly. And I think she bailed him out. His mother bailed him out. And that was the end of his relationship with South Africa. And he subsequently got divorced. And his wife died moved to Texas, took their kids, who are now extraordinary children. Michael, the son, and Amanda, the granddaughter, mm-hmm. are um, extraordinary young uh, people who are very religious, very uh, accomplished. They spoke beautifully at her funeral in 2013. Okay. Um, Michael did. But the point is, you know, you ask, what kind of legacy does that person need? And, and it comes down to, you know, this is how you find out you're old-fashioned. Um, is that you remember the things that you learned when you were 18 from someone like that, and you, they stay true today. Mm-hmm. And I went through a, pe- a period where, as I said, I was a member of the ANC, and my politics changed completely. Um, but, um, you know, when, 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 she had, when she had died, uh, you know, she, she, Thatcherism was essentially dead in, in, in Britain. And Thatcherism, as, as I defined it earlier, is um, a combination of, of being fiscally prudent and also culturally um, protective and those two things are are critical features of any nation state that wants mm. to retain its its identity and mm. there were a lot of things that I found uh, um, that that the conservative party had completely uh, reneged upon on, on those issues uh, and in 2010 the conservative party uh, uh, elected as its as the prime minister a former PR guy David Cameron, oily, okay? Just like the guy that came before him, Tony Blair, oily. There's Gordon Brown in between, but these guys are are, are PR guys. Sort of suspect. Mm. They were puppets. Completely. With with Thatcher, you knew, uh, you, you had the clearest indication that she, if she said no, she meant it. Mm. And um, I think with, with these guys, you know, I, I went, was invited uh, to um, the Conservative Party conference in Manchester, in 2015, the same year that I um, I left South Africa, and um, I spent half a day there, and it was the most fucking skull-numbingly boring occasion that I'd ever been to. And I and I left there thinking politically, like politically, I was a homosexual married to a woman. Okay, like I, I that's how I felt about following conservative politics that I was living a lie that this shit was not for me like believing in this stuff was just not and funnily enough (laughs) literally that is the case for 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 many conservative politicians that are actually gay married to women fill me in here like a homosexual married to a woman so you know a marriage of convenience okay that it was more convenient rather than practical or ideological to follow the conservatives because everything they said was fucking complete bullshit as far as as I, were, uh, as I was concerned. And this was in 2015. So I kind of left, I, di- I, I didn't really, you know, I took great offense to people who said, oh, you're just a main, main, mainstream conservative supporter when I, when I was writing, because, because I wasn't. And if I ever gave that impression... Um, people didn't get you. Yeah, I don't think that, that that's, you know, I, I, I took, articulated myself particularly well. But, but the point is that I... I sadly, I went back to the Conservatives when Boris Johnson, on the 12th of um, 
of uh, December 2019, there was a general election called, okay? And um, the options were totally uh, shit. You had Jeremy Corbyn as leader of Labour, who, you know, for all his faults, and I have many with him, most particular, I have his position on, 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 on Israel, um, but he's a, he is a principal dude insofar as anti-war, and he actually voted against vaccine passports uh, three weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago in England. You know, he's a, he's a principal guy, but as a, as a prime minister, not a fuck, okay, no ways. So there was that choice, and then you had the choice of Boris Johnson, who was so loved at that point in Britain because he had this sort of bravado and this can-do attitude, and he was fiercely patriotic. That was his appearance at face. And he was a successor to who? Theresa May. Essentially, Theresa May had lost a, a European mm. parliamentary election. So there was a thirst for someone that brought something new. Exactly. Now, there were people that were, that was, you know, I happen to know quite a lot about uh, Boris Johnson before he, um, before he, uh, I, I, one of my best men at my wedding has been an economist at The Spectator since uh, 1967, 1977, excuse me, the same year I was born, my, one of my best men started writing for The Spectator, and Boris Johnson was one of the editors, and he knew, and so I've heard. So Boris exactly Johnson was in the media industry? He was the editor Brian. of The Spectator, he had a column with the, with the Daily Telegraph, I'm not sure if he edited The Daily Telegraph, I, I, I think he might have. Um, but he was very much um, one of these Oxford Bullingdon Club, um, you know, you, the, the, the well-trodden path from uh, university into uh, a, a position. I, I, you know, I, he, he wanted apparently to become a ma management consultant, but he would have he would have never survived that because I think that does, even though it's a pretty evil industry, it does require a bit of discipline. And he is a chaotic man. He is um, undisciplined, uh, disheveled. That's part of his appeal. Um, but but he was loved because, as I said, the appearance of his um, patriotism of being British in 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 the traditional sense of of, of the understanding of of being a fighter of being um, a, you know a prisoner of hope um, to to steal a, a line from Desmond Tutu the late Desmond Tutu but that's what he was he was permanently uh, engaging and he did very very well when he was the mayor of London, from, from 2008 when he was elected to uh, 2000 and, um, I can't remember here, two terms, just 2015 I think it was. Right. Uh, he, he served two terms as the mayor of London. Uh, and he was beloved mayor of London. He was beloved, yeah. What he did was, he made a very smart move, cozied up to the LGBT community who were at that point sort of you know, ready to... Uh, London's always been a friendly and it's had a, a, a wonderful history of gay and, and lesbian uh, cultural... It's, it's a remarkable um, contributions to the vibrancy of the city, to music, to theatre. But up until Boris, the they were never really embraced. I, I think he really sort of exacerbated it. He mm. celebrated it. And he was, you know, very pro... Do you think that this was just a political move? I suspect... Or I, that he actually did believe in what he was promoting and embracing look, he as said part of British he society? Of, he's made a number of, of, of homophobic remarks, oh. um, which would indicate that it was slightly an act. But I don't think that he is, you know, a, a homophobic. I think mm. he, he says these silly things in the past for 
for clicks and, and, and likes. Um, but the reality is that that's when his sort of r appeal really came about. He had the support of this, this huge community in London. One of the most fascinating um, studies on, on, on Boris Johnson was documented by a notorious, well, he's, he's, he's notorious to the people he writes about because he, he's a guy called Tom Bauer and he's written biographies about Branson, about Mohammed, um, uh, which was the guy who ran Harrods, um, Al-Fayed, Mohammed Al-Fayed. Mm -hmm. um, he, he's written about Jeremy Corbyn and th this, this book that he wrote called The Gambler, published in 2020, beginning of last year, was a fascinating insight into Boris Johnson's um, who he really is. And he, he, he isn't really anyone. He wants to be all things to all people. And before he was mayor of London, he was actually an elected member of parliament for Uxbridge, okay? And he had run, on, I forget the details, but he was appointed education and, uh, education minister. And his sexual his affairs with, with people with women, in one in particular called Petronella Wyatt, who also happens to be a columnist at The Spectator, got him fired. He lied about it to Michael Howard, who was the leader of the Conservative Party at the time. And um, this was in the, in the Tony Blair administration, in the Labour administration. And he lied about these affairs um, because, you know, the, the newspapers all knew about them. And that got him fired. But he reinvented himself a couple of years later. He's uh, scurrilous. That's probably the right word. Um, He's, he's untrustworthy. This is, is, is very clearly revealed by, by the fact that he has had m multiple uh, extramarital affairs with multiple women, some of whom have had to have abortions. He doesn't know how many children he has. He can't tell you. He can't sit across the table. And, and this is while he was in office. This is whilst he was uh, editor of The Spectator, Minister of Education, Mayor of London, all, all through his career. So the epitome of someone that the British public trusted or ought to have been able to have trusted. That's the fascinating, this is the, this is the paradox, isn't it? He's behaved like a pig, okay, to, to all the women that he's ever been with, yeah. but he is still wildly popular amongst the electorate. Why do you think now, that is? Now, that, that's going back to the sort of appearance of bravado, the, the, the you know, that sort of um, choreographed, unshiveled look. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't that hair that he ruffles around is, is done on purpose to do that. He does that. Those are the kinds of things that, that people find enduring. But, I mean, this has changed. You know, as we move to the present in this discussion, you'll see that he's in Last Chance Saloon for a number of reasons. I think that, that, that worship of him has diminished considerably. It is interesting to note, though, that Boris's indiscretions, that he's been around for a while, it's been public knowledge. Yeah. And he hasn't lost support as a result thereof. No. So why do you think that is? Do you think it's because he's perhaps, you know, given the British public a level of honesty that they never had before? Boris never actually tried to hide the fact that this is his life. He has abandoned the moral compass of monogamy and these kinds of things, but people stuck with him. Yeah, I think a lot had to do with Brexit, you know, that he, he was never anti-Brexit. He was a metropolitan liberal. His family were metropolitan liberals. They love Europe. He did that. Purely, he took that position purely because he knew that there was growing resentment within the electorate. He was one of the figureheads of the movement, um, and obviously that has ruptured British society completely. But you know, if you had to look into his heart and ask if he was a Brexiteer or if he was a Remainer, you'd find he was a Remainer. He'd behaved that way his entire life. He never 
His father behaved that entire way. His sister did. His brothers, they all were remain people who saw the European Union mm. as a force for good. And uh, he took advantage of a growing resentment because when Polish people come and work in Britain, they work hard and they work for nothing and they live together in cramped quarters and they mm. get the job done brilliantly. And more often they're not a lot harder and under more you know, ridiculously difficult circumstances Precisely. than British people themselves. So, so the, the growing resentment was the idea that jobs were being taken, that there was this sort of replacement of the, the British um, identity by Europeans in particular. And that's what the theory, that's what Brexit was. And you know, Brexit was, was, a, was a civil war that wasn't fought with any guns, but it was vicious. And the, the consequences still endure today in, in horrible ways. Well, of course. I mean, I, you know, and I was accused of being a Brexiteer. I didn't give a fuck about Brexit. What I didn't like and, and what I've, you know, go back to my Thatcherite principles on is that, that, that you know, a man should be given uh, just as much as a chance uh, to succeed outside of the path of academia and all of its, all of its extensions by opening up um, a business selling records from the boot of his car. And, you know, I, I, that's my, I think Brexit is, is not friendly to that. Remain is not friendly to that. Remain, the European Union project, is very much uh, technocratic, very much overarching investment bank. And that, to me, uh, is, is not part of my, my identity or, or, or belief. Uh, but, you know, I, as I said, I don't give a fuck about it. Like, I, I'm, I'm a guest in a country that I'm not a citizen of. I work as hard as I can. Um, I see unfolding this shocking rupture of half of the people want British identity and half want European identity and all that it involves them. And, and, and Boris chose the, the one which was the angriest. And it won by a very small margin, but it did win. But left in its way, oh, yeah, sure. d divisiveness that will take decades to actually uh, if, ever, with. if ever. But Boris, his popularity is also aligned to that, very allied to his role in, in orchestrating Brexit. Okay, so I'm going to give you a few words. Yeah. I'm not going to ask questions. I'm just going to throw them out yeah. and then give sure. me your take. Joe Biden. Oh, he's a fraud. I mean, Joe Biden... Uh, I, those emails last year that were found on Hunter Biden's laptop, and that's been revealed as true. Biden's son. That's Biden's son, and yes. he was a crackhead, and he was a piece of shit, and also treated people incredibly badly. Joe Biden has been Mr. 10% in American terms for a very, very long time. Mm. He's got a, a fabulously uh, uh, luxurious property collection. How does a man who works on a salary in Congress uh, build a property thing like it's the same thing with Nancy Pelosi how is she worth 140 million dollars she's making decisions okay on companies that she's invested in all right they all and I, I, I've got no time I've, I, I, there is an element I sympathize with and that's the obvious decline in senility of the US president but really he is the most and uh, talking about race okay, and, and casting himself as some sort of race um, uh, uniter, okay? This guy was one of the architects of the crime bill, which has resulted in hundreds of thousands of young black men being incarcerated for minor crimes. And the prison industrial complex exploding as a result of this, losing their prospects. He's been caught lying on multiple occasions about being visiting Nelson Mandela, 
He's, 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 Which he never did. He never did. And you never find it in, in American okay. legacy media would never publish this, that he has on multiple occasions repeated a demonstrably false claim that, that he visited Nelson Mandela when, when he was nowhere fucking near him. I mean, Pretoria is not Robben Island, you know? No, so, it absolutely uh, is not. So, so uh, you know... There's and that. were these claims made during his campaign to become throughout president? His career, throughout his throughout career. Throughout his career. Throughout his career. So I've got a, for, for any listener that would be interested in knowing what Joe Biden thinks about black people, I suggest that they go to the Clarence Thomas trial. Uh, uh, Clarence Thomas is a, a black judge on the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And he was interrogated in the most vicious, in the most dehumanizing way uh, in the early 2000s by Joe Biden himself. Go and look on those YouTube, or if they've still got it up, Go Probably not. But Clarence Thomas that. was interrogated by Joe Biden. By Joe Biden. And Joe Biden at that stage being? Was a, was a fucking senator or some bullshit. The way he did it was so utterly vengeful. And Thomas himself, during that interrogation, it, it wasn't an interview. It was a fucking interrogation. Clarence Thomas said himself that this is a modern day lynching to Joe Biden's face. was, And most of the other time, okay, you think that we can't understand Joe Biden now, which we can't, all right? Go and listen to what he was saying there. You can't even understand him then. It's the most bizarre, absolutely, uh, you, you, what the hell is this guy saying? And, you know, at the age of what he is, nearly 80, he's leading the free world. He's a very sick man. It's public knowledge. He's a remote control president. I wrote a column about it last year that it's the first time in American history that you've got a guy who stands up there and has his buttons pushed by his chief of staff, by his um, national security advisor, all of these people, by his press secretary, Jen Psaki. So if you want to know what I think about Joe Biden, I'm probably going to get into trouble for it, but I think that he is a We can censor, we can censor. No, the reason that I ask is because I know that you wrote an article for us where you spoke about the blunder that was Biden's extraction of U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Yes. Well, I mean, that was America's greatest foreign policy. The greatest mistake being that they actually entered or exited the way that they exited did? Exited the way that they did. And how do you feel about the fact that they entered two well, decades ago where it perhaps was not actually their place, considering the fact that they had alternative motives to go in there? Well, okay, so, so, so think back to 2001 now. The Americans are convinced that Osama bin Laden is the, a guest of the Mullah Omar, who is the leader of uh, the Taliban, who are in uh, Afghanistan, okay? And they have a very strict society, and they, they are convinced that that Taliban regime is protecting Osama bin Laden. So what do they do? They did something ingenious, okay? They sent through pockets of highly skilled operators, SEALs, uh, Marines, but guys that would be able to uh, join forces with the opposition to the Taliban, which were a group called the Northern Alliance, who led by a guy called the Lion of Panjshir. I forget his name momentarily, but it'll come back to me. But this fascinating fucking shit-hot military strategist, a small sort of enemy to this uh, Taliban regime. The Americans went and armed the uh, opponents up, and they started making great inroads, and it was like insurgency, and it was fighting in a mountain kingdom, it was fighting these guys at their own game and winning, okay? And then the military-industrial complex got involved and they had to send over all of these guys and then they tried to change the culture. That was, that was a blunder. The first thing that they, the Americans did, if they were intent on, on, on ending 
Osama bin Laden was a clever one. And, and, and J Donald Rumsfeld, who died last year, deserves credit for, for, for the strategic brilliance of that because it worked. What happened after that was an absolute disgrace and uh, has been for decades. Um, the uh, the in, uh, involvement of Halliburton and Dick Cheney and what that's done to people. Um, uh, George W. Bush, who was pushed, who was, who was cajoled because he lacked, um, you know, he, he didn't have the sort of military um, understanding allowed this. There was one stage, there was like, you know, these American bases that they had in Kabul and other places. There were like McDonald's and Burger King and all of these companies would go out and sell subsidized meals to the Americans that were there. The occupation was a disaster. It had to end, but the way it ended was one of the saddest things and has done untold damage. And, and that's why Joe Biden today, he's never recovered from that. He never will. When he gets defeated at the next election, people will remember that as front and foremost. As a result of his very sudden and sort of cold turkey totally. removal of troops from exactly. Afghanistan. Exactly. It, it was all done for the media. They said, you know what, leave on the 20th anniversary of September the 11th, leave on that day and have all the cameras and all fawning Washington Post and New York Times, have all of them standing by and it turned out to be a fucking disaster. So, I'm a pacifist. Yes. My initial belief and reaction makes me think that, of course, they should get out there, but you can't rely on that ideal pacifism, no. considering the fact that two decades ago, this all started, it threw everything up into the air. So, yes, okay, but do you know where it ended up? And this is the madness of it all, okay, is that I agree with you. The emancipation of women in Afghanistan was a very important thing because that's great, okay. Where it started getting fucking stupid is when people started drawing murals of George Floyd on the walls of Kabul. What the fuck has George Floyd got to do with stuff that goes on in Kabul? Who is that? You know, it's very sad that a guy died in, in, in Minneapolis. What happened there and the consequences of it? I mean, you know, it, this, is, it's just, it, this is one of the great symptoms of how mad we now are, mm. is things like that. So that's Joe Biden for me. Mm. Okay, so next vibe I'm going to throw out is essay politics. Last year, there was what some would call watershed moments in the local elections. The fact that the ANC went down to 46% when two decades ago, it was very easily a guaranteed 76 where do you see South African politics moving? Do you think that these previous local elections are as positive as we would like to believe? Or do you think it's a very tiny symptom of the times? Where do you see South African politics going? Well, I had a, an investor from a family office, a German guy, about a month ago in London, say to me, oh, your country has got so much potential. And I had to tell him that at the present moment, Potential and the ANC cannot coexist in its current form, but I have been a little bit, I've been, I came with the worst expectations um, on this recent trip, and I think that Cyril Ramaphosa's um, relaxing of the restrictions has been a very positive thing, and I know for a fact that they feel incredibly um, aggrieved at the way that they were treated by with this Omicron thing. And I hope that, I mean, that, that's a minor thing. It's, you know, in the larger scheme, to be honest, I don't know about this, this new mayor, uh, Jeff, what's his name? Gordon Jordan Hill-Lewis. Hill Jordan Hill-Lewis. Okay, so, so this dude, all right, 
and you know he's probably a nice guy and from Edgemead and he's you know happy you know he, he's a, seems to have his heart in the right place yeah but 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 when you asked who your political heroes are okay don't say fucking Tony Blair because you've got uh, Lavender Hill in Cape Town was celebrating on September 11 2001 they were going mad okay and he's a guy that made relations between the Arab world and the Western world infinitely worse so don't express your and what exactly are you impressed with him by? Did you he know, elaborate why that was one of no, his heroes? No, he wasn't. I read it and I literally wrote him off. And, you know, I probably never met him. Um, the one mayor, you know, I did my work experience when I was at school for a couple of days at the at the Cape Times, which was a magnificent newspaper then. Mm. It was really good. Mm. The guys were on it and really smart and it was run beautifully. And, and this was in 1994. Mm. And I met the mayor because we had to do a photo shoot. In 1994, you, know, you were how old? 16. Mm. And you were already involved in politics? Well, I was, no, no, no. I was working experience as a reporter for the Cape Times. It was work experience. School made me go and do this. So I went and did this thing. And I walked away thinking, that's like, you know, uh, well, no, I've thought about it in recent years. I didn't walk away in feeling much, but you know, I've thought about it in recent years. I didn't know the guy's name. Um, and I would hope that a mayor, okay, doesn't behave like Sadiq Khan, doesn't behave like what's that idiot's name, Bill de Blasio, doesn't behave like any of these progressives in America that are ruining cities, all funded by uh, generous grants from the Soros Foundation. You know, these, these are, these, and district attorneys, uh, I, th I would like to think that a mayor goes into the city council, fucking cracks the whip, says, I would like to see this, this, this fucking yesterday, and that's it. And so, don't talk about your political heroes. Okay, go and see that they fixed the fucking water pipe that's burst in Mitchell's plane. Go and sort that mm -hmm. shit out. So, you know, I'm not, the DA doesn't, you know, I'm, I'm a shameless Helen Zilla fan and she knows it. I like her very, very much. Um, Why? Because she's fucking brave. I mean, if, if any other politician has reminded me more of Margaret Thatcher, it's been Helen Zilla. And, you know, Helen Zilla probably didn't agree with Margaret Thatcher's politics and, uh, you know, if Margaret Thatcher were alive, she probably wouldn't agree with Helen Zilla. But Helen Zilla broke the story of Steve Biko's murder when she was a journalist. Okay. And this was probably 1970s. Yeah. And I think that she's had such an extraordinary career and has been so appallingly treated by this moderate creep within the, the DA. Which the moderate Jews. creep? Well, you know, these guys like the mayor of Cape Town, who goes on fucking record to say that Tony Blair is one of his political heroes. This yeah. is much later, though. But, but I think when Helen Zilla was in power, yeah. who do you think was... Combative was, towards her. Well, I think that Musi Maimani wasn't a particularly effective guy. I wasn't particularly inspired by uh, Lindiri Mazabuka. I've always liked uh, John Stiernesen because he's a, a gutter fighter. I really enjoy that. You do? Yeah, I do. I okay. Because he's been insulted from all angles. And, you know, I think the mistake was to bend to people who were saying, take that poster down in those local elections. I think there was absolutely nothing wrong. If you want to get to people these days, that, yeah. that's what, the way you get to them. You don't. Yeah go by the ordinary rules. They've been destroyed. They've been yeah. destroyed by the ANC themselves, okay? So, so don't play into that, you know. Yeah. So, trying really hard to be PC mm. is actually really not the best thing that you can do for yourself as an outspoken political party. It's the worst thing that you can do for yourself. And it's, yeah. it's not documented. And, and, and COVID has, has proved that um, beyond reasonable doubt. Okay, that's my next question. COVID-19. So I see COVID as, I don't see it as a virus, I see it as a demon. And I wrote a column when it arrived in March for Biz News last year. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm someone who 
I see human relationships through thousands of years, human interaction through history, and failure too. Okay, so we have suddenly this virus that's obviously been the result of these guys fucking around with this Wuhan lamb, and they've been playing with this guy, Peter Daszak, from Eco Health Alliance. So you do believe that the origin of COVID-19 was a Wuhan lab release that was sanctioned by the U.S. government? Financed by it. And it was mechanism of action research? Precisely. Do you think it escaped purposefully or deliberately? I think that they sent it there because it was cheaper. I think they sent it there for, for whatever reason. I don't believe that they deliberately unleashed that. But this is the risks that you face when you've got a, a, a lab that doesn't have the correct security protocols, which that place clearly didn't. That in itself raises questions. Well, yeah, okay, so let's go back. I don't believe that it was intentionally released. What I believe ha- happened next, okay, is that as soon as it's reached the West, now, you and I, we're normal, ordinary people, we're sitting down and suddenly our elected leaders stand up and they say, we're going to deal with this and you're going to be fine. So now you and I are going to sit there going, okay, fine, all right? You said the same thing in 2003 when you told the world that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, okay? And you fucked that up, all right? I'm going to have to take you back there. In 2003, they said that Saddam Hussein had mass weapons of destruction. As the precursor for the invasion of Iraq. How does South Africa fit into this? It's a world thing. Let's talk about this through the context of like the wider world. Okay. And and, and, and I'll I'll get to the point now. Mm -hmm. So we're sitting here and we've got the people, the expert class, let's call them the expert class. And they say, we're going to deal with COVID. Don't worry about it. We're going to fucking sort the shit out. Now, we are standing there going, okay. They fucked up the weapons of mass destruction with a war that had the consequences which we saw uh, ISIS as one of them. Then there was mortgage-backed securities. When you say they, who are you referring to? Our elected leaders, the governments of Western countries. But whose recommendations are they following? Well, this is one of the points that I'm getting to, okay? So they say that we are going to sort COVID out because we know the right people. Now, bearing in mind that our patience has been exhausted by the invasion of Iraq, by the global financial collapse, okay, by the invasion of Libya, by Tony, uh, 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 David Cameron and, and, and other things. And now we've said to them, okay, at this stage, you, you've, you, you, know, you've, you haven't really done well on these things, but we'll give you a chance. And I said this in the column. I said, we'll have patience and we'll listen to you as you wheel out the guys that you think are capable of dealing with this, okay? And what have they gone and done? Again, they've gone and breached our trust this time, I believe, personally, irreversibly. Um, I think that COVID, as I said, is more a demon than a virus. And what you do when you are confronted with a demon, you fucking tool up. So, you know, at a very early stage, COVID is going to attack people with existing comorbidities. I have to ask what you mean by the fact that it's a demon and not a virus. Can the two only exist exclusively from one another? Or is it perhaps a virus and a demon as a result uh, of what's transpired. No, no, of course, it's it's a virus, and I've never doubted the severity okay. of it and its, and its impact to people. But as a feeling and as a human instinct, COVID is a demon. COVID is, uh, and it has become so, and it showed from its early stages when Italy was locking down that people were, were acting very irrationally. Now, as I said, you've got two choices when you're faced with a demon. The clever people went, okay, I'm going to start taking a fuckload of zinc 
vitamin D. I'm going to get super strong. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to cut down on beer. And you know what? If I get it, I stand a much better chance. And if I want to take it a step further, no one's going to fucking stop me from buying the Nobel Prize winning ivermectin. No one's going to stop me from doing that. I'm going to tool up like that. Okay. Or you try and make deals with the demon. And there were two ways that that was done. Firstly, lockdown was a deal with the demon because... The demon being? The demon being COVID. Okay, the, 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 the first thing to do would be to lock down and then you would enrich companies like Amazon and Microsoft because you were suddenly virtual. Do you think that the very initial lockdown, which started in South Africa the 27th of March 2020 for three weeks and then continued for another two weeks... Do you think that was premeditated? I don't think it was premeditated. I think, though, uh, look, I think it was encouraged more than premeditated. I think that's an important distinction. And the people that were encouraging it were the likes of Imperial College in the UK, which is that clown Neil Ferguson and his stupid modeling, which has been wrong on every single fucking thing. And they still, the BBC still listens to him. But uh, it it was encouraged and who did it benefit okay they said no no you're locking down so so who did lockdowns benefit they benefit the guys that run these enormous corporations and they don't benefit the frontline workers because they're working their asses off they don't benefit waiters they don't benefit fucking baristas they are fundamentally essentially anti-human but how do you think that this happened without it being premeditated how did it just happen to completely benefit and like be to the advantage of the 99.9%? I think that they, they took advantage of it immediately. When, they, when the stupid decision was made for Britain to lock down on the 20th of March 2020, okay, I think that these companies thought, hang on, okay, Microsoft, and those are the most vicious salesmen in the world, get into every single company and sell them our Teams tool. Do you think that they took advantage of this is now where we are, these are the circumstances, as a business, we will capitalize. So it was more predatory as opposed to predetermined. I don't think that they said lockdown so we can, uh, Amazon can fucking have bumper sale. Do you think that, that the governments that imposed these sorts of restrictions super early on at that time believed, given the data that was available to them at that stage, that they were doing the right thing? I think that they were frightened to their wits to degree by these fucking idiots that we have, the expert class, like Neil Ferguson and like Anthony Fauci. I think that the, the Imperial College chiefly, okay, um, and to a lesser extent, Glenda Gray, who's the South African woman, mm-hmm. I think all these people were, tra- were, were reliant upon models that, were, that are faulty. South African relied heavily on, and Alec pointed out to me at one point that Neil Ferguson's model, which had been shoved in front of Boris Johnson and forced Boris Johnson into this lockdown, uh, it has since been uh, false, but, but he's had a history of being false about a number of things. He, throughout his career, has been horrendously wrong. This is the guy who we're supposed to trust. He is the guy who's got all the fucking degrees. But his experience prior there, too, had been discredited as a result of the fact that it was incorrect. But Boris Johnson and his team still went with it. Exactly. That was the first deal with the demon, okay? It was for these places to lock down so that companies found themselves in a position to exploit the, the commercial opportunities, okay? Um, the second part of it was um, to use COVID as a point of virtue signaling. Now, we've gone through the behavior of a certain doctor that uh, had a lot to say about you on Twitter, 
okay? Uh, should we name him? Let's fucking name him. Dr. Alistair McAlpine. Okay, so take him as one example. Okay, absolute clown. And he named me along with? Biz News and along with the other doctor that had uh, been interviewed. and Herman Yedling. Herman About Ivermectin, okay? About something that he knows nothing about that was won a Nobel Prize uh, for that was repurposed from its human um, uh, from its from from its human variant to an animal vermin, so it was never a horse paste. And and you know what? If Alistair McAlpine is going to say you're wrong on this, okay, then I'm going to say shut the fuck up, you shill for big farmer. So you know, you you you. What what is your solution, Alistair McAlpine? Do you want people to get filled with remdesivir and then go on a ventilator and have their lungs exploded? Is that your solution here? Or you know what's what's you know what's your alternative? But but the point is that those were the two the things that I see what COVID did to the world. It formed a huge division. Forty billionaires were created as a result in 2020. You know you can't say exclusively from COVID, but it's unusual. And then the second part was to use a pandemic where people's lives uh, to, to to perpetuate your own fucking woke virtue signaling he him black lives matter trans lives matter i mean it's fucking nauseating but this is how these guys could feel better about themselves like like alistair mcalpine who could have himself verified by twitter for being what a doctor my doctor doesn't do that shit and then he can go to sleep better at night knowing that he's got his pronouns in the bio so every time i read one of your columns like I literally, like I laugh out loud, it is wildly entertaining, it is satirical at its best, and it's so perceptive in terms of, interestingly enough, very often what's happening in the South African political situation. You're a technology investor based in London. Where do you find the time and the passion and the drive to write the kind of pieces that you do? so I'm, I'm, I'm shamelessly homesick and I miss South Africa so much all the time and I, I, I read up as much as I can when I can. I'm always listening to business podcasts, I'm always listening to, uh, and I love South African literature and I read a lot and I try and absorb as much as possible. I, I read a, um, you know, a couple of books a week, uh, I listen to a couple of books a week, I listen to um, in between that I, 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 I don't read any mainstream media anymore the people that I get my information from in South Africa are Gareth Cliff Roman Kabanek Jonathan Witt Nick Hudson and people that I genuinely like as people who I know um, and, and that I trust and that I I think are, are really good um, whose judgment is, is absolutely sound and courageously so. And, and courageously so, because I think that we're in a... And Helen Zilla, of course, uh, not forgetting her. Um, and there are a couple of other people, but, but I, I can't... I, 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 I'm really, really struggling to understand um, why News 24 retains the popularity it is. It depresses me. Um, I know how the Daily Maverick, you know, I know their model as cowardly as it is. I know what Nathan Giffen's up to and... You know the places that are sort of business as kind of competitors on on that level, on that niche mm. level, um, are, are just behaving like major media companies. Um, and you know, I, I won't say anything about 
getting donations from outside organizations because I don't actually have the facts. But when I read, um, I, I find it very difficult not to come to the conclusion that the editorial policy is being determined elsewhere. And I think that that is a sad thing. I mean, we've had terrible examples in South Africa of really bad journalism. Um, we've had the Cato Manor bullshit, which was the Sunday Times guys. Um, we, you know, we, uh, we've had Pete Rampedi, uh going. We've had Iqbal Survey. All of these things that have poisoned, that have the... And, and, and I feel, you know, really strongly because I love Chris Becker as a businessman. Um, I think he's been one of the most creative guys, businessmen, that have, and, and so brave. But I'd love him one day to, like, just log on to News 24 and see the absolute shit that they are perpetuating from that and I'm sorry it is and it's 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 uh, sanctimonious um, uh, and I, I you know I, I'm I'm devastated by the fact that a guy like Max Dupree who formed once this incredible investigative capacity in the apartheid to expose people like Ferdy Barnard is now busying himself with Greta Thunberg and fucking gender ideology that is devastating to me and and I I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really sad that that's where the standard of South African journalism has, has come. So I'm critical, but I maintain these friendships. I, I know Roman. Um, I, uh, Gareth Cliff is, is, is a, I think, is a wonderful human being. I think um, uh, Helen Zilla is a wonderful woman. Alec, who is my great friend in South Africa and in England, um, and I trust that you know, and, and, and you know, they tell the truth um, as, as best I see it. Let me give you like one final example of how bad things are. And I'm afraid I have to go back to our favorite doctor, this idiot, McAlpine. He's made a comment that Joe Rogan is goop for men. Now, goop is um, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, as I understand. I think that's what he means. It's her personal brand. Yes. Okay. And um, so, so Joe Rogan is a guy who is an extraordinary career. The so, one individual that seems to have become prolific enough to escape the YouTube police censorship. Precisely. So here's what I, I say about that. I mean, and, and this is, you know, whether he says that that's Joe. Joe Rogan has come out in support of Bernie Sanders, who is a very left-wing U.S. politician. He's come out on support of Tulsi Gabbard, who was the, the the face of anti-war politics in America. He's come out in support of a Nicaraguan woman whose child was taken from her by ICE when she was in New York under the Trump administration. He's a he's a man who feels mm. very deeply mm. about human things. Okay. And he's been courageous enough to do so publicly. Exactly. I mean. But Joe, Joe Rogan is not in the expert class that we have, that have led, led COVID. And, and Alistair McAlpine and all these other idiots, Neil Ferguson and, and all of these um, uh, the, and Fauci and Dazek and the editor of the Lancet in Britain, Richard Horton, they're all the expert class and they hate him and subsequently they hate us as a result. And, and that's where the divide is now. It's between People who, who feel for each other, who see the hurt that lockdown brings, and people who are unashamedly pro-bad relations. Okay, I'm going to end with this. A couple of weeks ago, you submitted an article to Biz News about your 2021 awards. Yes. All right. Walk me through it. Okay. Nick Hudson is someone I trust implicitly. I know him. And I think that he's an extraordinarily courageous man. I think that he's, he's worthy of so much more. He gets blindsided every day. I'm on Team Hudson. I don't really 
have a view on his I don't think he has a view on vaccinations. I'm not interested in that. I think I think vaccines actually work and I I'm not an anti vaxxer. You picked Nick Hudson for the second time in a year. Exactly. And why was that? Well because I think that he's done enough again to present such a articulate objection to lockdowns mm. that I think that that's deserved. And I think lockdowns are one of the most cruel things that, that have ever been done. And Chris Bateman said that people wouldn't agree on the scandal of the year. You know what, I think that, that Gauteng health official, and I, uh, I, I, I confess to not remembering her name, Babita, someone or other who was assassinated in Johannesburg is a pretty fucking big scandal. But I thought the second travel ban and the rapidity at which it was enforced and the thinking behind it, which was so naive, I give Suryan Mapose enormous credit for now objecting to features of the uh, expert class. And I think that that's a really positive step because you're winning me over when you say to these guys, fuck you, get out of here, you know. Um, I think, you know, uh, 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 the leader of the year, I chose Tulsi Gabbard, is because Joe Biden was very close to sending American troops into Ukraine to fight Russia, and that would have been the last thing that the world needs, and she was one of the only people willing to stand up and go, actually, I've been in a war multiple times. She was in Iraq. And uh, Joe Biden is, the chief remote controller is a guy called Ronald Klain, who's his chief of staff, and he's a bad dude. He's a properly bad dude. And he is the chap who pulls the strings. I don't think that they have the Democrats, the true Democratic, blue-collar Democrat, JFK Democrat uh, interests at heart. I think that they are heavily tied to the investment banks in Wall Street. I mean, all governments are, but these guys in particular, because they say that they're not. So I prefer someone like Donald Trump. He might be a fucking riverboat casino captain, okay, but at the same time, he says, you know, he does bend the truth and uh, on a couple of occasions, that's fine, but I trust him infinitely more than a guy like Ronald Klain or Joe Biden or Jen Psaki or Pete Buttigieg, who's the useless U.S. Secretary of Transport. So, uh, you know, I put some thinking into these awards, the little time that I that I have available. But, you know, it's, it's, it's more for fun than anything else. And next year will be in our fifth year. One of my close friends is, as I said, Lawrence Fox, who's, who uh, I'm going to send this to because... He told me that next year he'd be a, a guest. So 2022, on the fifth anniversary, I'm going to have Lawrence Fox and I'm going to have someone else, another South African dude too, or maybe even an American, maybe even Trump. <laughs> Last question. In the, I mean, let's not play it down, chaotic reality that the world the finds world, itself okay. in at the moment, who do you predict being our potential leader out of this. So the people that are going anti-work are the guys that are the hills to die on. And that's the likes of Ron DeSantis, who's the governor of Florida. That's the likes of the Eastern European dudes who are standing firm in the face of woke um, EU interference. And, you know, people who call uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary a dictator. He is certainly not. I like writers on my... Mark Stein is a remarkable broadcaster... I think the anti-woke narrative is the thing to watch because it's going to embarrass a whole lot of people and it's going to make them incredibly, um, you know, I, I, you don't want people to be eliminated. We're not like that. Our side, we don't want to destroy people. We don't want to cancel. 